Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that there is a, div- a diverse community that eats together in Brooklyn. I think about that story, a tree grows in Brooklyn, <laughs> and uh, it's just, there's a family growing here. So Father, I pray that you would teach us to root ourselves in your story, that we would truly be a people of the story, that the narrative of Jesus would drive our life, or drive our fellowship, would drive our eating. Would you do, us, do that for us this morning? Please, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. How's everybody doing? Good? Amen. Don't mind me, I'm a little nervous. (laughs) I want to start today by just reading our vision statement. Um, Because we started a new sermon series two weeks ago on vision. And so I'm just going to read that. I don't know if they have the slide. I didn't have it, but I'll just read it. (laughs) It says, Hope Brooklyn is a diverse community that eats together. At the table, we come face to face with Jesus and one another. Through a shared meal, authentic community, and the narrative of Jesus, we are transformed. We live lives of imperfect love and reckless generosity, engaging our neighborhood in Brooklyn and beyond according to the gospel of grace, because God invited us freely to his table. All are invited to ours. If this is your first time with us, we're happy you're here. I'm happy you're here. Uh, Forgive me if I stumble a little. This isn't the norm. But um, I'm excited just because this is something that, um, for me, and Russell knows this because we've had a lot of conversations over the past year, has been something that God has been reshaping in my heart, and it's this idea of the narrative of Jesus. And so I love that the vision statement here in Hope Brooklyn incorporates that idea. And so just to do a quick recap, two weeks ago, Russell started by preaching that first sentence from our vision statement, which is, Hope Brooklyn is a diverse community that eats together. That's awesome. I like to eat. So I love that this community likes to eat. But what I thought was so amazing and what I enjoyed about what Russell preached that day was that he said that before we do anything or say anything, there's something that we're communicating to everyone who walks through the doors, to everyone who comes to our tables, for everyone who sits with us and talks with us, and it's that we're a diverse community. And there's something kind of uh, amazing about that because it paints a picture of the gospel, it paints a picture of our God. Our God, there's this theological idea called the Trinity, and our God is three persons in one. He's distinct so that he's uh, different but not separate, and he's diverse and yet he's bound. And so there's something that we say without ever doing it, without ever saying it or doing anything that we communicate to people who come through, and that's this diversity that we have within our community. And it's beautiful because most vision statements, as Russell points out, are action statements. They're all about do this and be that. But here at Old Brooklyn, we use an indicative one. Hope Brooklyn is. We are. There's something about who we are automatically, and that's something that we communicate that's kind of without even saying it, people see it when they walk through the doors. As Russell said, there's this dichotomy here in uh, in Hope Brooklyn of Old Brooklyn, New Brooklyn. There's this community that's diverse. It's not just one group of people coming in or one group of people that have been here. It's this kind of collaboration, and people see that, and there's something magical about that. And so he established, you know, that the first, uh, from the opening statement of our vision, we are a diverse community that eats together. And then the following week, he preached a great sermon about why we are that way. And that's the second line of our vision statement, that at the table, we come face to face with Jesus and one another. And he preached from the Emmaus Road. I don't know if you know that story. Jesus resurrects and 
he's, uh, there's word going around that he's been seen by one of his disciples named Simon Peter, that two women saw him resurrected. And so there's two disciples who are traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus, seven mile journey. And on the road, the resurrected Jesus meets them, but they don't recognize him. And they begin having this conversation with him because Jesus kind of entertains the thought that, I don't know what's been going on, Can, you know, tell me what's been happening. And so they tell him everything that Jesus did and how he came and their expectations of him. And then Jesus begins to talk about himself through the scriptures to them. So seven miles, they're having this conversation. It's a long conversation. And then, they, and then when they get to Emmaus, they invite Jesus to, to stay with them and they sit down to eat and it's at the table when Jesus breaks the bread that they says their eyes were open. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus in a way disappears. He becomes invisible. They don't see him anymore. And it's at that moment that they look at each other and they, and they start recollecting what we felt like on the road talking to this man. We're not our hearts burning within us, they said. There's something that happens when we sit at the table with one another. We become face to face. We see one another, but we also see Jesus. And so if week one was the who and week two, sentence two was the why, I can't help but feel like sentence three is the what. What happens when a diverse community comes face to face with one another at a table? and we become transformed. The third sentence in our vision statement says, through a shared meal, authentic community, we are transformed. And that's exactly what happens in the story that Shayana read this morning. There's a man named Zacchaeus and Jesus invites himself over for dinner. He's not invited, Russell said something uh, interesting last week that at the Emmaus Road, they invite Jesus to the table and yet out of nowhere or instantly it becomes his table. He's the guy breaking the bread and serving people. Jesus does the same thing. This is something, a reoccurring idea in Jesus' life that he comes into people's homes and he eats with them. But that's exactly what happens with Zacchaeus. He's transformed when Jesus decides, I'm coming over for dinner at your place. And so transformation, this happens when this narrative of Jesus begins to kind of show up in our eyes, shows up before us, shows up in our relationships. And that's what I want to talk about today. There's a pillar, one of the pillars of uh, our core values here at uh, Hope Brooklyn is that we are a people of the story. And so often, you know, we all have stories of our own and there's always stories that we relate to. But there's something that I've learned over the years that there's something called the, the meta-narrative, the grand story. There's a story that's kind of over all stories. It's the kind of the story that we feel our life plays into. And that's the story of the gospel. And so in this story, we're gonna look at with Zacchaeus and Jesus, we're gonna see that Zacchaeus has, is on his journey, he's a seeker, if you wanna call it that. In fact, the text says that he's seeking to see Jesus. But there's another story being told. And so often, me growing up, I've grown up in the church, I never heard that other story. I was always focused on Zacchaeus, I never knew that there was another player who the story was really about. And so let's look at that story, Zacchaeus and Jesus. And so it opens up by telling us that Jesus was on a journey and he was passing through Jericho. If you read, the, if you read Luke's gospel, you know at this point, Jesus is about to transition into Jerusalem. He's about to go into what they call the triumphal entry when the people welcome Jesus into Jerusalem as the king, the savior, the Messiah. And this is the, the point actually, I think it's a, probably a couple verses after this story that he does that, he enters into Jerusalem. And so he's been on this journey, three years he's been in ministry, he's been teaching, he's been preaching, he's been eating. They called him a glutton actually, because he spent so much time eating with people. And he gets to this point where he comes to Jericho and we're introduced to another character, another person in the story called Zacchaeus. 
And, all we, and what we're told about him is that Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector, and he's very rich. And I don't know if you know this, but in the, to be a tax collector in that culture, in that society, was to be one of the most vilified people in your community. Tax collectors weren't seen as uh, people who held a job. They were seen as thieves, as robbers. You weren't respected for your job, or your job wasn't really a job. You were seen as a traitor to your people. Because what the Romans would do when they would occupy a place in Jerusalem and uh, was occupied by the Romans, the Judean land, was that they'd find locals who were familiar with territory, familiar with language, familiar with uh, trade and all that, and then they would hire these or contract these men to collect taxes for them. But in doing that, they elicited them to be greedy because they didn't care how much they taxed people as long as Rome got their peace. And so what would happen is that these tax collectors would become very greedy and they overtax their own people and make their pockets rich. And for Zacchaeus, he's not just called a tax collector, he's called a chief tax collector, which means that the piece of property he was given to take control of or to, to collect taxes from was so big, he had to subcontract and find other people. So he had to convince other Jews and elicit them out of their community to become greedy tax collectors like himself. So Zacchaeus is not a good person coming into the story. You know, he's not just some guy. There's a reason why it's called the chief tax and he's very rich. It's supposed to elicit some kind of feeling like this is a bad dude. You know, you're supposed to already feel like something's wrong here with this guy. And so it tells us that Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. No doubt he'd heard about Jesus. No doubt he had heard uh, the things he had done, the fact that he was a, uh, the Messiah or the Savior, as people were saying, as he was saying of himself. And so he's curious to see him. It says, but he can't. He's incapable of seeing him. Two reasons, the crowd and he's short. You know, I've grown up my whole life, and I heard that there's actually like a famous... Uh, like children's song about Zacchaeus. I never heard it. I think it's a Spanish church thing. We, don't, we didn't sing that. Um, but, uh, but I was always taught that the story was really about how he was so short that he, and he had to like overcome the odds and, and climb over everybody to see Jesus. And it's this great story about you know, a man who defeats the odds. But it's actually the opposite. This story is not about a man who's kind of being kept away from Jesus. This is a man who's okay with being away with from Jesus, as long as he can see him from a distance. But the problem is the crowd is too massive. He's too short, he can't see over them. But what I find interesting is that Zacchaeus doesn't find the need to push through the crowd. In fact, he tries to avoid the crowd completely. And I think it has a lot to do with what we just talked about, him being a chief tax collector, him being this vilified person, a person whom no one wanted around or no one wanted to be around when people considered a thief and a robber, not even part of their own community. The rabbis actually, some rabbis have a practice of keeping tax collectors away from religious observance, which means they were technically considered unclean. And in the Jewish culture, to be unclean meant you couldn't be in relationship with one another and you could not be in relationship with God. You were ceremonially unclean, you had to be cleansed. And so there was a tradition in a sense where tax collectors were kept away from social interaction, kept away from uh, ceremonial activity, and Zacchaeus at this moment kind of reveals to us the reality of that because rather than engage and try to pass through to see Jesus, he decides to stay away from everyone. And he comes up with this plan. And it's interesting that he knows exactly where 
Jesus would pass through. And like I said before, tax collectors knew routes, they knew roads, they were familiar with that. He knew where he could be, where he could hide to see Jesus and so that the crowd wouldn't see him. This isn't a story about a man who's, you know, overcoming the odds. This is a story about a man who wants to hide, who's content to hide. He wants to see Jesus. He's a seeker, as the story tells us, but he's a seeker from a distance. And so he hides in his tree. And I can imagine Zacchaeus as the people are coming. I don't know about you, but I don't know if you've ever tried to hide from a group of people. Or if you ever try to sneak in somewhere and do something real quick and hopefully no one sees you. Me and my brother, we grew up in um, Midwood, the Midwood area, Flatbush, and there was an old theater called the Kent Theater. The theater was so run down. I think tickets were like $3 on Wednesday. Popcorn was like a dollar. The place was amazing. But it was really run down. And so me and my brother, one time we had this idea that, you know, we could sneak into a movie, a rated R movie. We were like 13, 14 years old, and we could watch it. Nobody would know because nobody cared. I always remember that one day I went to the theater, and you know you go to a movie theater and you pay the person and you walk in and someone else, you know, rips the ticket for you. My brother went, we paid the guy, and as we're walking, the guy's walking with us, and he turns the corner and then he rips the ticket at the line, and then he goes back to the window. I always remember that because I thought, why didn't you just rip it for us? But my brother figured this place was so undermanned and so kind of like broken down, nobody cared about it. And so my brother figured we could do this. So we went to go see a movie, a radar movie. It happened to be like, a, I guess, a really popular movie everyone wanted to see because there was no place to sit in the theater. So when we actually went into it, there was nowhere to go. My brother had to split up. And so I remember sitting somewhere far in the back and my brother having to sit far in the front. And it was so crowded that they literally had people going through the crowds looking to find seats. And so I remember my brother just, I don't think I, rem- I couldn't remember anything in the movie because I was so afraid that someone was going to see me there. And I remember just watching, the only thing I focused on was if they're going to see my brother. I don't even think I enjoyed the movie that much. I can't recall. It was just a terrifying experience that we'll be caught, you know, somewhere not supposed to be. So I don't know if you've ever been somewhere where you try to hide in a way that no one can see you or find you. And, but Zacchaeus is doing that in this story. He's hiding. He's hiding from Jesus. He's hiding from the crowd. The thoughts that probably go through his mind would be that if they saw me, what would they do to me? What would they say to me? I shouldn't even be here. I shouldn't be around them. They don't want me around. What would Jesus say to me? He knows I'm a tax collector. He knows I'm a chief tax collector. He knows these things. He doesn't want to have that interaction. He doesn't want to be even face-to-face with them. He's trying to hide and, and stay away. And so what actually happens is the worst thing that could happen for Zacchaeus is he gets identified. The story tells us that Jesus walks exactly to the place where he is, looks straight up, and calls his name. I don't know if you've ever been caught before. <laughs> That's terrifying. <laughs> Zacchaeus is in this tree, and he's caught, red-handed, hiding. And we know that the crowd does not like this man, because when Jesus responds to him, we, fought, we can see their response. And rather than expose the man and say, Zacchaeus, come down, you know, and rebuke him and say all these things, he says something else. He tells him, hurry, come down, because I, I have to eat at your place tonight. And the crowd's response is one of such kind of, uh, it says they grumble, which means like they talked under their breath. They were so kind of irate. They're probably not mad enough to make a big statement, but mad enough to be like, you know, un- uncomfortable, that they grumbled within themselves. He's going to eat with a sinner. That's how you know Zacchaeus was probably, it was probably right for Zacchaeus to hide. These people did not like him. 
And they, if it was their way, they'd probably do something else to him. But Jesus goes to eat with him. And while eating with him, something happens to Zacchaeus. First of all, it says that he came down the tree joyful, excited. He comes, he, he runs down the tree, he jumps down. So excited that Jesus is, wants to sit with him and eat with him. And some point along the meal, we don't know when, Zacchaeus stands up and he tells Jesus, behold everything. He says, if I have everything I have, I give to the poor. And I, if I've defrauded, if I've stolen from anyone, which we all know he has, he says, if I've stolen from anyone, I'll give them back fourfold. Do you know that the Jewish law, if you were caught stealing, you only had to give back twice what you took? Something happens to this man that he's so moved by Jesus being, and not only does he want to give all he has, not because Jesus tells him to, or that's some kind of way to atone for his, his actions, but he desires to give all that he has, and not only that, but those he's wronged, he desires to go above and beyond the law of God. He wants to give more. And Jesus' response to him is interesting because he, it says that he talks to Zacchaeus, but he speaks to, about Zacchaeus in the third person. So he gives this idea that the people who were grumbling were there as well, and he says, Salvation has come to this home, for indeed, he says, this man, Zacchaeus, is a son of Abraham. And then he ends with verse 10, for the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. As I was preparing for this sermon, I found out that that verse, Christian thinkers and scholars believe that that verse, if there's one verse that'll define the book of Luke, it's that verse right there. That verse right there defines what it means for Jesus' mission. As I started looking at that, I found, a, I found a, I was looking through the Lexham Bible Dictionary, and I found out that Jesus' mission has a lot to do, has more to do with our lives as a whole than it does with just this idea of salvation, and we'll talk more about that, but the, the quote I found says that when it comes to the question of Jesus' purpose and plans for humanity on behalf of God the Father, the New Testament concentrates his role in salvation. This is not viewed as a saving away from the world and the resurrection of a place in heaven. Primarily, it is a deliverance from the penalty and power of sin in the view of wrath of God, the corruption of the human person and society, and the hostile hegemony or mastery of the world and cosmic powers. Basically, in a nutshell, Jesus, when he offers salvation, when he says that statement that the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost, he's basically saying there's one thing he's out there to do, He's out here to save. And I'm sure many of you have probably seen that two phrase, you know, uh, that two word phrase all over the place, Jesus saves. You've seen on bumper stickers, on, maybe on cars and shirts. I've actually seen it on the train. I've seen it on the walls in the streets of New York City. There's actually a graffiti artist from Brooklyn. Uh, he's actually from Bushwick and he goes with by the tag Jesus saves. And he writes Jesus saves all over the city. And um, I actually had a chance encounter with him. It's interesting because graffiti artists are like mythical creatures. <laughs> you see their like work and you wonder about who they are, but you never really see them. You don't know how they did it. I had a chance encounter with this guy. I actually, um, at the age of 13, I started breakdancing and I would practice in different places in New York. And I went to this gym in a school, kind of like this. And as we were practicing, there was this guy there. And I remember he was off to the corner and he kind of joined our group and he was practicing with us. And he was, he was kind of strange, I'm not gonna lie. He was kind of a strange guy. And, as, and so no one was really talking to him. And so I started talking to him. We just got into conversation and going, sharing back and forth. And then he asked me, you know, like what was our crew called and all this. And then he takes out his, uh, a book and he writes the, the crew name 
he writes in the graffiti. And I'm like, oh, wow, you're good. And then I noticed in the corner, he wrote, Jesus saves. And I was like, you're that guy? And he's like, yeah. And we started talking. And I tell him how I'm a Christian and how, and we just had a great conversation. And he kind of lays out that, I, that the reason why he would do this, go all over the city, is because he saw that, you know, graffiti art was about, there's this idea in graffiti art is called going, being all city. It's about being everywhere, your name being everywhere, that people can't go into any borough, any hole in the wall and not see your name. There's actually a great documentary about graffiti art in like the 70s and 80s called Style Wars. And they talk a lot about that and you follow like young graffiti artists and these guys are incredible. And, but there's this moment in the movie where there's a graffiti artist, he's talking to his mom, he's probably like 17 years old and he's trying to explain this idea to his mom of being all city. And she's like, I don't get it, why he wants to be all city and he wants to put his name everywhere and all that. And he's trying to explain to this something about people knowing my name everywhere they go. And as I was talking to Jesus Saves, he's telling me like he wanted to put Jesus' name everywhere. He wanted everywhere people went to have this idea in their mind, Jesus saves. You know, that's an that's a incredible idea that somebody would do. Rather than exalt his name, he puts Jesus's. But what I've come to find out is that people are familiar with that phrase, Jesus saves, but they're not really too familiar with what it means for Jesus to save. And so when I read that in the Lexham Bible Dictionary, when I read that, Jesus' salvation is not primarily about just saving us from this world and and reserving a place for us in heaven. It's deeper than that. It's about a deliverance of the whole person. That in a way, our personhood is restless and broken. We have a a broken relationship with God, it says, you know, that we're in, it talks about the broken aspect of our relationship and view of God. We have a broken relationship with people and we have a broken relationship to the world. And if you think about the story we just read, Zacchaeus fits that category perfectly. As a tax collector, he has a broken relationship with people. People don't like like him. They don't want to be around him. He can't even get in contact. I don't know if you ever thought about that, of having to be isolated from one another. Granted, I'm sure he took the position, but just the, the reality of pursuing greed and money for this man left him isolated from people. Not only that, but he had a broken relationship with God for the sins he was doing. His greed and his love for money, if you're familiar with Jesus' testimony and Jesus' ministry, he talks a lot about the love of money. He always pinpoints radical generosity versus self-interest. Zacchaeus would be the quintessential sinner. And not only that, but he had a misunderstanding or misview relationship with the world in the sense that he, was, he valued money and, and, and greed and all these things over taking care of others. Zacchaeus fits that bill perfectly. He's a man who's a restless seeker. And what Jesus is primarily concerned with, when you read the Gospels, he's primarily concerned with a life that exhibits rest in God and focus on his kingdom. Jesus, what he primarily offers us in salvation is rest. Rest for the weary. You hear that word a lot. Jesus says, come all who are tired labor and I'll give you rest. He constantly talks about rest. There's a poem I read about two years ago and it's written by a man who uh, G.K. Chesterton said um, was a great poet. Oscar Wilde said that no one could write poetry or tell stories, not even he could as well as this man. J.R.R. Tolkien who wrote The Lord of the Rings actually said that this man's poetry had a huge influence on his writing and this man's name was Francis Thompson. Francis Thompson wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven, and that poem came to be the very thing that defined his life. 
defined all of his work. It's like that thread that in all his work you keep coming back to the narrative he's telling. And the Hound of Heaven is a story about a wayward and restless soul that's seeking but doesn't find. And it, but more than that, it's about a relentless, pursuing divine who will not stop until he brings rest to this soul. And I want to read you the opening uh, stanzas from that poem. Because right from the jump, Francis Thompson just lays out this relationship. He says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, up vitiated hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasm fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed and majestic instancy, they beat and a voice beat, more instant than the feet, all things betrayest thee who betrayest me. Francis Thompson was a man who, incredible writer, but he was born in a home where uh, it was expected that he would become a doctor like his father. But despite the fact that he was great at literature and writing and all these things, he couldn't master uh, math and science or even the minute organizational skills that would be required of someone who wanted to be a doctor. And so he failed the medical exam over three times. And it was decided at that point by the college that he should pursue another profession. And so he went home and his desire was always to be a writer and his parents supported his private writing but not his public life. They felt there wasn't a career that was worthwhile, a profession that was valuable. And so what he ends up doing is he ends up running away from home. He ends up fleeing to London and committed to being a writer. But his lack of organizational ability and uh, just his lack of just managing his life had left him destitute, living on the streets homeless. Around the, right before, around the time he left to London, he suffered from uh, tuberculosis and was prescribed a, uh, a medicine at the time called laudanum, which was like a strong form of opium. It was actually mixed with sweet wine and sherry, and it was a, an amazing painkiller, but highly addictive. And Francis Thompson ended up becoming a homeless, destitute, and addicted man, spending all his money on, it, on laudanum. And so what he does is at one point in his life, in the lowest point, he, he uses the small pennies he has from, collecting, from uh, holding people's horses, from uh, selling matches in the street for a little piece of paper. And he writes a couple, I think, short, a short story on it, and he drops it into a publisher in London. Coincidentally, that publisher reads it, thinks there's great merit here, but he left no return address. So the publisher publishes his work in the hope of finding him. Long story short, when they finally meet, the publisher is amazed at his condition and decides that he's going to help this man and commits his life to helping him. And he gets him through a rehab program that gets him off of his addiction, but, it's so, but he's so emotionally distraught, so wrecked emotionally, so wrecked physically, that they fear that leaving him in, in London would only, he'd only return to his habit. And so they set him up to stay in a monastery in the countryside. And while he's there, he reflects on his life and on where he's been and what's happening. And 
through the hearing of the Psalms and the, the monastic prayers and all that, he begins to think of a great story that's being told kind of over his life. And he writes this poem, The Hound of Heaven. And what he's communicating in this poem is that the restless and weary soul is seeking for something, but oftentimes, and more often than not, the very thing we need is the very thing we flee from. What Zacchaeus needed more than anything else was the Messiah. He desired to see him, but he didn't just need to see him. He needed to know him and be known by him. So when Jesus invites himself over to his house for dinner, it's no mystery why Zacchaeus' response is so great, filled with joy, filled with love, and feel so, so thankful, so excited to be accepted into relationship. And so what does this have to do with with Hope Brooklyn. Well, there's nothing mystical or magical about sharing meals and being authentic in community. There's nothing like it's, a, it's not some strategic formula that if everyone does it, people will be transformed. It's what it communicates to the world and communicates to ourselves and others that when we do this is that we found the rest. We found the very thing that we've been seeking and we have become known by him. What makes us a community or makes us able to love and be loved is that we ourselves have become loved. We ourselves become accepted. We ourselves have become enraptured by God. And so Jesus' primary concern when he preaches and he talks about salvation is that he desires to bring rest to restless seekers. And that's that poem by Francis Thompson, the person is seeking and he's restless. In fact, if you were to read the poem, it's a long poem, it's difficult to read. I, they actually uh, created a modern uh, adaptation of the poem just because of how hard it is to read. Um, but if you read the poem, you see that stanza after stanza, moment after moment, the man is fleeing to various pursuits, various things he says, this thing, and every time it's like, this thing's gonna give me the thing I'm looking for. And it seems to work, and if you read the poem, you see it. Every moment he goes, it seems to be doing it. But then all of a sudden he says he hears that voice again and he hears those feet again. And whatever it is that he was pursuing, the voice tells him those things will flee you as you continue to flee me. Francis Thompson understood that rest will only come like Augustine understood when we rest in God. And so what we want to communicate when we say that through a shared meal and authentic communion, the narrative of Jesus, people are transformed is that when we share meals with one another, it's because we ourselves are share, have shared a meal with the Savior. We ourselves have been found that rest. When we say that authentic community, we come face to face with one another, it's because we have become face to face with Jesus. The narrative of Jesus isn't just something we say, it's something that's being told by our lives and in our lives. It's something that we communicate to others it's why when, I agree with Russell, that when people come and they see this diverse community and they see that we eat together, they see that we have authentic community, we're face to face, it brings some sense in all. Why? You'd wonder why. And it's because of that narrative of Jesus. That Jesus saves. And what he saves us from is the restless pursuits of our heart. Restless in trying to get up, make our lives right with God. Restless in trying to make our relationships right. Restless in trying to figure out how to navigate this world. He offers rest. He offers hope. But there's another thing that he does. Is that he reorients 
our hearts and our, and our view, I guess, of the world. Jesus often talks about something called the kingdom of God. And not to get too much into it, only because I feel like I'll be stepping on next week, is that one thing Jesus stresses is that in all of his teachings, when he talks about the kingdom of God, he talks about caring for the poor and seeking justice. Those are the things that he desires, that our hearts would be kind of bent towards and, and, and desiring of. And if you listen to the vision statement, if you looked at it, you would see that after you know, the, our sentence today, the next line is in perfect love and radical generosity. What that transformation looks like is a people become so at rest, so at peace, that we are now able to give the very thing that we once sought from others. We're able to give authentic community. We're able to open up our homes to whomever and, and wherever. We're able to have relationship with people we should not have relationship with. We're able to do those things. We're able to be radically generous. Last thing I would like to share is that Jesus and Francis Thompson both uh, did something in uh, Jesus in his statement to Zacchaeus and, and Francis Thompson in his poem. Jesus recognizes Zacchaeus and calls to him. Charles Spurgeon had a group of uh, seminary students and as he was talking with them, he pointed to one and he told, and it's the, coincidentally, the man was actually in a tree, they were outside, and he tells him to, to, to preach a sermon from, from this passage, Luke 19, one through 10. And the young man, very wise, says, Zacchaeus came down, and so will I. Jesus invites us to rest. Francis Thompson closes his poem with an invitation. The divine finally encounters the man and they have this kind of interaction with one another and he invites him to rest. And the man struggles with that rest. And so I'm gonna read the final lines of The Hound of Heaven and then I'm gonna pray. And I believe Russell will come up after that. So if you would just uh, listen with me as uh, I read this for you. Sorry. It says, now of that long pursuit comes on at hand that brute that voices round me like a bursting sea. And is thy earth so marred, shattered, shard and shard? Lo, all things fly thee, for thou fliest me. Strange, piteous, futile thing, wherefore should any set thee love apart, seeing none but I makes much of naught? And human love needs human meriting, how hast thou merited of all man's clay the dingiest clod? Alas, thou knowest not how little worthy of any love thou art. Whom will thou find to love ignoble thee save me, only me? All which I took from thee I did not take, not for thy harm, but that just thou mightest seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies as lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. Halts by me that footfall. Is my gloom, after all, shades of his hand outstretched caressingly? Ah, findest, love blindest, weakest, I am whom thou seekest. Thou drivest love away from thee, who drivest me.
God. I pray that we would live our lives in that story. The story of a God who is relentlessly pursuing the restless. Father, I pray that we would hear the invitation to rest. That when we share meals, what we would communicate would be rest. When we have authentic community, what we would share, communicate would be rest. And when we engage in our conversations, the narrative we would speak and share would be that of rest. You have offered rest to restless seekers. God, I pray that we would come, that we would see that thou art whom we have been seeking. Father, I pray, make us a people of the story. Let that be what drives our eating, what drives our relationships, let that be what drives the culture here at Hope Brooklyn. The story of Jesus has invited us to rest, and so we welcome all into that rest. In Jesus' name.